This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I, I don't know whether you know this or not, but the, do you know that in podcasts there is a tag that you flip or a checkbox that you flip when you're publishing it if there's any explicit language in there? Did you know that? No. All right. So, so there is. <laughs> And for the first time a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about your friend's book, we were not using explicit language. When I say we, I mean you were not using explicit language, but you were quoting things that used explicit language. So I had to flip that on. And we were, we were talking before we started recording, and you were so excited about something that's going on in your life, you started using this explicit language, and I'm like, we should use this for the chit-chat, but without the explicit language. (laughs) Just so you guys know, I work very hard to not use, like, it takes a vicious, conscious mental effort not to use explicit language when I'm on this show, and not because... I'm afraid of censors or anything, but just out of respect, because I know some people are sensitive to it. But in my everyday life, I swear, like, punctuation (laughs) such a bad potty mouth, and I don't care. I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel guilty. I actually enjoy it. And I wrote this big, huge, long post about it one time, because I grew up not being, I had to be, I couldn't speak. I couldn't, like say anything without it being so controlled and measured and this is just like to be able to swear is like complete freedom for me for me but i just try really hard not to do it and you just just know that when you do i have to click that little checkbox (laughs) now i know i didn't know (laughs) six years and i didn't know (laughs) so anyway you were really and i'll just say really really if you can imagine a more explicit word there for the second really excited about something (laughs) I was. And it was that um, where I'm at now um, in working on this, this work in progress, this next Monroe book, that I have finally moved into territory that I have not been able to get to in years, in, in so many attempts to try and write this book and failures to try and write this book. I always get to a certain spot and then something happens and I can't go any further. Either life blows up in my face or my brain blows up in my head or something happens and I never get any further. And I cross that threshold. And for the first time in so long, I'm like, I'm going through old notes and I'm going, okay, well, this can go, this can stay, move this over here. And, and I'm, and I'm reading material I haven't touched in six years and I'm just like oh my god I I, this I I'm writing again this is this is the whole process of building out a first draft I'm I'm in it again and it felt flipping amazing and it it, it would not feel so flipping amazing if I had to like 
was under a deadline for it or I was doing daily word count goals because I still move so very slow. But just to have crossed that line and and to be here and and to feel like I have a grasp on the story again and at least I have a sense of where it's supposed to go, even if 90% of my notes are trash because so much has changed since then, it's, it's still pretty freaking cool. And was there one thing that that allowed you to realize that this had happened? Well, um, I mean, you can't not realize it when it's happening. It's happening. Um, you know, I finished where I was and as far as I'd gotten before and I'd gone back and I'd had some ideas that was like, ooh, yeah. And I went back and added those. And so even after I had finished what I was working on, I'd still been working on it. And then I got that done and I was like, well, I guess I'll just see what's next. And I realized that um, I needed to like print, start printing it out and, and just going through it with a red pen and, and going save, delete, save, delete, um, and not do it on the computer. And it was in printing that stuff out. I was like, this is pretty freaking cool. I'm burning <laughs> through pages again. <laughs> like the old days. Yeah. <laughs> How to use visual cues as storytelling shortcuts or what I like to call in colloquial terms, an easy way to explain how a character knows something or an easy way for a character to figure something out without using a lot of words. So, um, yeah, it basically visual cues are things that allow you to replace many, many, many words with very, very few. And this arose as a topic for me. Uh, it was kind of like a, a two a two things that pointed into a spear that was like, hey, we should talk about this. And um, the first was when I was using this technique in this project that I'm working on, this book. Um, and in, in this particular case, this visual cue that I was working with was coffee mug. And I decided to have a bit of fun with it um, just kind of randomly. Like, I didn't even think, oh, I'm using this visual technique or anything. It was just like, oh, I need to describe this item in a way that will work for X, Y, Z, which I'm going to explain in just a minute. And so instead of just doing what I normally do, which would be go pull stuff up on the Internet and go, hey, what would work for this? I put it to the Facebook group and I was like, hey, um, so here's possible fun opportunity. No guarantees or anything. But uh, I if you want to have your own Easter egg added into this story, I need, you know, some I need a coffee mug, basically. And I, I didn't really explain a lot in that post about how the technique works other than just really bare basic that, you know, in trying to get good feedback from those who'd be offering it, I was like, okay, so I'm using this as a visual cue and visual visual cues are always going to work better when they're memorable. And the things that will make a visual cue memorable are like colors or special markings, just really easy ways to describe something without going into a lot of detail about it. And so I'm going to explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But before we go there, I wanted to use a visual example to explain visual cues, basically <laughs> save myself lots of words and explain this and going to go very meta on that. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> this particular visual example is the other prong of that arrow that, that made me go, hey, this is probably a really good thing to talk about. And it comes from the movie Tenet which I happen to have only just recently watched, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. Um, but once you recognize what it is I'm describing, you're going to see that it is 
everywhere. You've been seeing it everywhere. It's so common in movies. Um, and actually, you know, because movies are like they're they're a visual storytelling medium. Um, I I think that this particular way of doing it, that there are times that it's the only way that you can convey information in in a movie. And so, like I said, it's just it's everywhere. It's it's almost like feels redundant to talk about it. But the thing is that in books, it's different. So books, they allow you far more options for conveying information because everything takes place inside a character's head. So what's on the page, we, we see whatever the character sees. So we can see things visually, but because we're essentially able to read the character's minds, we're in their heads, right? They can also just tell us what we need to know. So there's, there's multiple ways of conveying information. And I think in movies, you're pretty much limited to what you can see or what you can hear. So that's dialogue, voiceovers, and, and visuals. That's, that's it, right? But that's why books are so much richer or deeper or more immersive experiences because we feel what the characters are feeling if, it, if it's done well. So because of that, because of those multiple options that we have in, in conveying information in book form, we don't always turn to these visual tools because they're just not as critical, they're not as necessary, and so they're easier to overlook. It's really quite powerful. Um, because when you have a character who's telling you what you need to know, that, that just like involves walking through so many words. It's just you have to go through the thought process and, and all the logic and everything. And it just it can get really clunky. So all of that to say that this this technique that they use in film, it works just as well as books in books as it does in movies. Uh, but because I am so underread, I don't have any legitimate way of saying that it is used as often as it could or should be. And so I don't have any examples to hand out except for my own. And, you know, you guys, you guys might come up with several while we're discussing this, but anyway, first tenant, right? So tenant, if you haven't seen it is a super complicated movie. Um, Steve and I were just talking about it before we started recording. And um, he was mentioning how many negative reviews it had gotten and how he wasn't sure he had wanted to see it. And I was the same way. Like, I had heard that it wasn't that great. And so I was really wasn't that interested in seeing it. But it was on. It's an amazing movie. It's so well done. It's 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 one of those movies is too smart for its own good, really, is what it is. Like, it's inception level smart, but multiplied by so many times it's you you can't watch it just once it's a movie that is about things that can be moved backwards and forwards in time and the movie could probably be watched backwards and forwards and make sense either direction but you can't watch it just once to really fully get it it's it's that type of a movie but anyway this is not about the movie what it is about is this particular scene um, that relates this particular topic. And I, I think I can do this without spoilers. So there's this scene in the movie where the main character finds a body on the floor. It's just another soldier fully decked out in camel gear. And the guy on the floor is dead. And we don't know how he got there. We don't know who he is. We don't see his face. We don't know anything. We don't even know if this particular body 
is more important or means anything than any other body or dead person or whatever that's been killed along the way, except, except that if you've been paying the least bit attention in storytelling class, then you know about Chekhov's gun, <laughs> which is basically the principle that you never show a gun being placed on the mantelpiece unless you plan to use it later in the story, which is just another way of saying that if you show your audience something, then the audience automatically assumes that the thing you're showing them is important. And if you don't do something with the thing that you showed them, then in their minds, it's a loose thread. So don't do that. So from an audience perspective, that means that as a general rule, we are never shown things in movies and we shouldn't be shown them in books that don't somehow matter to the story. Because when we show them, we instinctively know that it matters. And so that's the case with that body there on the floor. We know that body on the floor matters because it's not, and it's not just the camera panning over any random body because dangling from this guy's kit, like his backpack or whatever, is this orange, maybe it's vermilion, like a threaded cord wrapped through a metal coin. It's like this type of trinket maybe that you'd pick up outside of a temple in an Eastern country like, you know, Japan or China or something. And so for the, for the sake of simplicity, because I don't really actually know what this object was, we're just going to call this orangey cord wrapped around a coin thing a zipper pull, okay? So we're just going to call it a zipper pull. So at that point in the story, there's this brightly colored zipper pull that has no particular meaning, right? We've never seen it before. We don't know if it has some form of religious significance or if it tells us where the owner's been. Nothing. But there's one thing that's absolutely sure, certain, we see it. We absolutely see it. And why? Why do we see it? And it's because in spite of how small and insignificant this thing is, it's not subtle. Why? Why isn't it subtle? And that's because the entire military outfit is camo colors. And this object is orangey. It's never shown up on any camo anywhere in any military ever. It stands out. And the, and the way that it's threaded through this coin with a hole in it, it makes it unique. So it's not something that blends in with everything else. It, it is its own object. It's unique. So when we see it, even for that split second, we see it. Camera just pans right over it. It's not like it's focusing in on it, but we see it. And because we see it, we remember it. That's a visual cue, right? So... This zipper pull shows up later, and it's in this moment where someone is walking away. And it's right there when this person's walking away that we know who the body on the floor is and what the significance of finding that body meant. And this is backwards. <laughs> this is objectively backwards to anything that really should make sense, because normally you'd see the living person first, and then you'd find it on the dead body. But Tenet is this movie in which objects flow both directions in time, so it makes sense to the movie. But the point is, is that in the movie, that visual cue stood in for explanation. Because through it, both the audience and the other characters were able to put two and two together. Just no other words were needed. It's just that was it. No, no analysis, no nothing. Just you see it there, you see it here. Ah, got it. And, and that's something that movies do all the time, 
we see something, that something has meaning, that meaning connects to something else. And those types of visual cues are used to connect flashbacks to present. They're used to show us a character's logic process as they figure something out. You'll see this flashing montage of things that have shown up in the movie before, and now the character's remembering them. And we don't have to have him, the character, through dialogue or any other way tell the audience or tell another character how he figured something out. It's just that we see, we just watched him figure it out because we saw those same things earlier. Those are all visual cues that are relaying high quantities of information. And in the case of movies, using no words. In books, you have to use a few words, right? So visual cues like that in movies are also used to convey information about characters, like the clothes that they wear, the books that they read, the cars that they drive. All of these things tell us something about the characters. And they do in books too, right? And they tell us things about places and atmosphere and so on. But when I'm talking about using objects as visual cues today, we're specifically focusing in on the aspect of using it to shortcut explanations and convey lots of information using very few words. And so in books, this is a subset of foreshadowing. And in books, it takes a bit more finesse to use that technique than it does in film. Because in film, you can just show it. But in books, it doesn't, objects don't just randomly show up out of nowhere the way that they can in a visual medium like film. So I don't know if there are already existing rules of thumb for how often or the timing of when an object needs to be shown for it to be an effective visual cue. I imagine that it's somewhat situational. It might vary based on how obvious the visual cue is, how closely the initial like show is connected to the subsequent reveal. Like maybe if it's really close together in a book, for example, you don't need anything in between that. But if it's at the beginning of the book and then at the very end of the book, you might need two or three references in between because that's a lot of hours and a lot of reading time in between one and the other. I also think that in movies, no matter how or where one, like something like was in this movie Tenet, how it shows up, I think using it more than twice would feel really heavy handed, like it was being shoved in your face or that the person who was editing it didn't, you know, didn't take something that should have been cut and, and left it in accidentally. Um, because movies are different. You know, you see it, it's there, it's in your face, it's done. And even if you, it shows up again an hour and a half later, you're still going to remember it because it's all so closely connected. But when it's done in the written form, it's a little different. And so my gut response, the way that I do it myself, is unless the show and the reveal are really close to each other, like just a few separated by just a few chapters, I try to inject the object three times. And the way that my thinking on this goes is the first time you inject it, you're establishing its existence. The second time you're reminding the reader that it exists, because if you've gone quite a while between readings and or even between pages and you're doing it in one reading, it's really easy to forget. And then the third is the reveal. And that's the reason that the thing exists in the story to begin with. 
to me personally, having a visual cue show up on the page more than three times, that's going to start to feel heavy handed. But that is a byproduct of the way that I write. And it's possible that for other styles, other voices, other genres, you'd need to have something show up many more times for it to have the same effect. So like I mentioned, I'm there's this coffee mug, right, in this, in this thing that I'm working on. And um, it, I'm using it to, to convey a lot of information using very few words. It's a shortcut. And basically, it's used to visually explain how our main character, Monroe, knows something without going into a lot of detail about how she knows it. And so how would you do something like this by using a coffee mug? And for me, that is done by implication. So I'm going to try and do this without spoilers, but, you know, forgive me here. So the first time we see this coffee mug is when we learn of its existence. And that, in the way it comes about, is not with a lot of explanation. We, we know that it's an object that a secondary character has carried with them from the United States to Europe. And we don't go into detail about why or if the mug has any special meaning to him because none of that matters to the plot or to the character. All we know is that the character drinks a lot of coffee and this is the mug he uses, right? And then there's more, but it's related to that, the whatever go is going on at hand. And it's not about the mug. It's not about that character, but the mug is just interwoven into it. And so for, for that type of uh, visual cue to work, there has to be something distinct about the coffee mug to create a visual image. It can't just be a coffee mug. It has to have a descriptor that goes with it that raises a distinct visual image that can work as a callback later on where we call back to it. And I haven't yet at this point in time, even though that post went up weeks ago, I haven't yet settled on what I'm going to do with this. But one of the suggestions that I like the most was to make it a Darth Vader mug. And the reason I like this suggestion is not because of the reasons it was suggested, which had to do with characters or, you know, any story behind it or anything like that. The reason I like this suggestion of Darth Vader mug is because it's a universally recognized symbol. And it says a little bit about the person who owns it without having to say anything about it. It just on its own, if you, if you, have a coffee mug that's in the shape of a Darth Vader uh, mask or whatever that thing is. <laughs> it's not his face. Um, then, then you know, it says something about you as a person. And so the thing is, though, lots of mugs say something about people who own them, but they're not universally recognized. Nor are they something that you can just call back to with a few words. So if it's got some description on the outside, like some witty saying on the outside. You can't call back to that coffee mug by the witty saying. But you could call back to it if it was crimson red. You could call back to a crimson red mug as distinct. It's a visual image, right? But Darth Vader is a whole lot more visually suggestive and recognized than just saying dark red mug, right? So that's why I like that suggestion. If you've got a, a visual cue that you can't call back to with just a few words, that's a problem in, in terms of foreshadowing. 
Um, because if it takes lots of sentences to describe something that, and then you've got to try and call back to it using those multiple sentences, that's just going to work against you because the coffee mug is not the focus of the scene. Your visual object is not the focus of your scene. And in this case, the scene exists for its own reason. It has its own purpose, completely separate of the coffee mug. The coffee mug's just slipped in there as sort of a secondary purpose. And that's the thing with all foreshadowing. And like I said, this using a visual object to shortcut um, lots and lots of words, make information, it's, it's a form of foreshadowing. So the thing with foreshadowing is it's a shadow. You're hinting at something to come. It's very light. It's, it's a light touch. You see it, but you don't really pay attention to it in the moment because it's not the immediate focus. And if you've got a lot of words going into describing this visual cue, that's very heavy handed. It's not light. It's not a shadow. And even more so if the, the object is the focus of that scene. So to make this sort of visual cue shortcut slash foreshadowing work, it has to be done very delicately and just slipped in there. So the first time you know the object exists, it's just one object. It just, it's just a thing. It's just showing up in the scene that you're focused on something completely different, right? It's very different from showing a visual cue in film because in film, you can't help but see it. It's just there. It's right in your face. In a book, you might miss it if you blink. And it's because of that miss it and blink aspect that it's not enough to only show the object twice. That's why I go for it three times. So if in this particular case, if I don't end up using the Darth Vader for the coffee mug, I'll go with something that creates an equally memorable and simple visual cue. I, I thought about doing Master Chief. Um, as one of them, another possibility is just to use a really bright color, like, like I'd mentioned, or to do something that's artworky, like a Picasso painting, because you can call back to a Picasso painting. You can call back to a character from a video game or a book, but you can't call back to something that's very clever and very unique to that character that takes a lot of words, right? So... I want something easy to call back to. So, again, the first time we see that coffee mug is when we learn of its existence and that it's this object that a secondary character carried with him from the United States to Europe. The second time we see it, it's in another country. And because we're just shown this coffee mug in passing as part of yet another existing scene that doesn't focus on the coffee mug, we now know without having been told, we just know it because it's implied and it's just there as part of what's going on, that this character has now twice packed this coffee mug up into a suitcase and carried it with him to a new location. The third time we see it, that's the reveal. That's the whole point that the visual cue existed in the first place. And this secondary character has supposedly been sent home. His things are all gone. Someone else is in his room, but the coffee mug is still there. Now, what does that tell you? It's what that information conveys, right? On its own, that shortcuts having to walk through this very wordy, less impactful sort of thought process of where the character arrives at the conclusion, right? So 
you can have a character missing without any visual cue. And the main character is like, oh, something bad must have happened to them because of X, Y, Z, blah, 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 and walk you through it. Or you can go, character's missing, but the coffee mug's still there. Hmm. And come to the same conclusion in one sentence, but far more effectively. So that is what, that is the power of visual cues in storytelling. And I mean, in this particular case, we're talking about the character figuring something out, using it as a way to to shortcut what they know. But that same technique can be used for so many other things. The point being, you use it to convey a lot of information with very, very few words. And that is how you do it. Interesting. And a question. I know you like to, to do double duty with things. So when you're thinking about the Darth Vader mug with with your character. Is is that something that would actually give a reader some insight into the character? And and is that something that you're looking for in terms of the object? If, If I, okay, so if I can, yes. But my primary goal in that object is making it very visually distinct um, so that you cannot, there's no mistaking that you saw it and there's no mistaking what it means. Uh, If it was something that was not distinct, and let's just use this as a hypothetical, let's say, for example, it was a white mug that had some really clever inscription on it, right? If the third time when it shows up, your main character sees it, how do we know that it's not a different white mug? How do we know that it's the same one? So now we have to call back and say something about the words that are on it, how she saw it, she's close. You have to to position your character carefully to make sure all of that makes sense. And it's just, it's, it's unnecessary work. And the more you throw into that, the more you dilute the power of the image, right? So that's always going to be my first priority is making sure that it is visually distinct. And going back to the movie Tenet, right? The, that, as far as I know, unless I missed something, which is very possible because it was a very complicated movie and I've only seen it once, that uh, zipper pull, as we're calling it, had no meaning whatsoever except to draw the connection between one scene and the next and explain explain what we saw with zero words. Um, the fact that it was something that looked like it could have been purchased outside a temple somewhere or, you know, like a something gathered up in a travels to a foreign country, zero impact on the story, zero impact on the character, completely unrelated. The very fact that it was so out of place is what made it stand out and made it memorable. So if you can get something that speaks to the character as well, all the better. But the most important part is making it work as a visual cue. All right. Well, this is, this is a fantastic topic. So uh, nice. I, I was trying to think of, of situations like you described in books, and I couldn't really come up with anything off the top of my head. But just, you mentioned this is one way of doing it, and and there are other ways of doing it as well. And presumably one of those is just using a visual cue to tell 
to give a little bit more depth about a character. Yes, uh, not sure. so much that you, something that you'd use as a callback later on. I, and I'm, I'm thinking of a series of books that I've read where there was a, the first conversation between two recurring characters, one of whom is a tough guy, private eye, who beats people up all the time, and the other of whom is a crime boss. And one is in the other's office and spots a Bible sitting there. It's like, oh. It's a Bible. Do you actually read that? And then they get into a discussion of the Bible, which is so out of left field that um, it was it stuck with me. Um, it becomes very memorable. Yes, yes. And they didn't yeah. really need to. I in, in thinking about it, they could have just you know the one character could have seen the Bible, and then it could have led to a discussion later on, and it would have just left the reader with. Uh, wondering, like, what's going on here? Because this doesn't make sense for these two characters. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, it, so that's the same kind of thing, then. It's just doing it without a callback. Yeah, and or doing it without a callback, but also using a visual cue to convey a lot of information with a very few amount of words. In the particular case that you described, they then went on to have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. But, and again, having not read the book, I don't know if that conversation was critical to the story or the plot or whatever. Well, that, the, actually, it's the conversation then comes up throughout all of the books. So that becomes the callback. So the Bible is okay. is the thing that starts the conversation. Right. And then the conversation continues to happen throughout the books, which is such an anomaly because this one guy's, you know, is a drug dealing, you know, the classic crime lord. Yeah. And they so meet each other in church example. all the time. And it's like it, it's, it's like it's crazy. Yes. So that was a visual cue that that uh, set off a chain of. I don't want to say events because it doesn't really classify in the classical sense of events, but it, it, it is a a woven thread that runs through the story. And the Bible was the visual cue that sets it off. So it in itself did the work of explaining how this thread got started, right? Yes. So it was the kickoff. So in that sense, it did the work of conveying a lot of information with very few words, visual cue. All right, and I'm going to take that as my cue to wrap this episode up. <laughs> so right, thank then. you all very much for listening, and uh, we will be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week. <laughs>